Now, don't start just thinking because you show up on a Wednesday night. Well, what's a Wednesday night service? A whole bunch of people showed up. You only show up for like a week or two. You guys are horrible. Horrible. Uh, everybody either get one of the things on the way in or download it and print it. You can probably, if you have a smartphone, you can probably just click on the email update from today and get it on there as well. Have it on your phone. That kind of stuff. Look at that, no preamble. We're just going to jump right in. Uh, just a quick thing of Element U. Uh, Element U are, is our short series that we do in the spring and the fall. Uh, it's usually on some type of subject that's going to hopefully expand your brains a little bit. If you walk out of here at some point going, I didn't catch all that, that's exactly where we want you to be. Okay, because we want to, we, we don't want to always speak in here. We want to kind of go up here so you got to think of things that are up here. Uh, sometimes when Paul does a couple of these, you'll be like that as well going, I, I wish he could say that Ten more times so I'd understand what he said. So we'll kind of uh, do that. So tonight we're just going to jump in. Uh, if your Bible, open it up to 1 Peter 3.15. As you flip in there, I'm going to show you a video clip. All right. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, when you watch that clip, that is someone who is totally out of their depth, does not know how to talk about God in any shape or form. And that's what a lot of our culture looks like today. Now, the word for defense in that first uh, Peter verse right there is where we get our word apology from. Uh, the, the word apology doesn't mean you meekly, you know, cover and hide your face and cower in fear and you're always saying, I'm sorry to everyone. What it means is you make a defense like you'd make in a court of law. So my wife likes Judge Judy, as most of you know. Uh, Judge Judy has plaintiffs and defendants, and they both get to make their case. The plaintiff stands up in front of Judge Judy and says, they killed my dog, I want $5,000. Now, the defendant on the other side, who is the apologist, says, well, her dog was running around the neighborhood eating small children and throwing them back up. And then her dog came for my kid, and I told her to stop it. She wouldn't stop it. The dog had my kid halfway down its throat, so I killed it. And Judge Judy says, well, that's a good reason to kill a dog. And I will also let you pay for your medical bills out of their side, so you get $5,000 instead. Boom, good apology, good defense, there you go, that's kind of what it means. Now, biblically, we are called to be a people who can boldly state the case for what we believe, like we were given a defense, giving an apology. So during this class, we're going to look at how to make a defense for various things such as uh, next week, the existence of God, the week after that, the proof of the resurrection and who Jesus was, the week after that, the reliability of the scriptures, the week after that, we're going to talk about competing systems of thought. Then the the last week, we're going to talk about the problems of biblical biblical positions, such as why does God allow suffering? If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does he allow suffering? Now, if you are a geek who likes to sit in your room all day reading blogs and ignores the call to live missionally in your life, then this class is not for you. If you spend all your time reading books and commentaries by old dead white guys and that's all that you do, this class is not for you. If you sit around thinking of arguments that will most likely never happen because you'll never meet Bill Maher, you'll never be invited to be on a panel on MSNBC, and this class is not for you. If you like to critique and say, oh, he should have said this, or he should have talked about that, or he should have done this, and this class is not for you because you will just irritate me. 
and you'll irritate Paul as he comes and talks to you like next week. This is a class for normal people living normal lives who want to be able to understand and defend the biblical position. So you have the reasons for the faith that you hold in circumstances. It's for people who want to rest easier at night knowing they are not fools for believing the claims of the scriptures. It's for people who love Jesus dearly and want to talk about him in reasonable ways. A lot of times when you get to a place in your life and someone brings an argument in front of you, you go back and think, man, we talked about this at church one time and I wish I would have remembered. And so we're going to hit a lot of stuff and we don't don't expect you to remember it all. It's why we give you notes. Uh, you, you really never remember the arguments that you need until you're standing in front of somebody like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who maybe questions the, uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And you've never had to defend it before, but you've heard the arguments a hundred times. And until you have to defend it, you don't necessarily remember it. So that's why we give you lots of notes. We put all these things online so you can listen to them and go back to them because eventually you are going to want to remember the stuff. I think apologetics can accomplish great things regarding the truths of Christianity because it seeks to answer honest questions, but it also seeks to expose dishonest questions as well, as well as always trying to build the faith of believers. As I mentioned in 1 Peter 3.15, it tells us to be able to defend the faith. But the scriptures also give examples throughout like the book of Acts where they actually did those things. The early Christians were doing just that. Open your Bibles to Jude chapter, or Jude verse 3. There's no just chapter 1 chapter, but Jude verse 3. And what you see throughout the book of Acts, I'll show you one thing a little bit later, how they engage in reasoned discussions with people for the evidence of Christianity. And so we're just simply following that original instruction that was handed down, uh, the ones that were taught by the apostles from the very beginning. In Jude verse 3, Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so at this element, you, what we want to do is first off, equip and prepare you to be people to contend earnestly for the faith that has been handed to you. Uh, we also want to help you define a biblical base for a Christian apologetic for a good defense. Uh, this is when you know certain things and you think a certain way and then all the other arguments in your mind come into line because there are certain questions that simply need to be asked. It's why at Element we always talk about the gospel because everything only makes sense in terms of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to help you also formulate a good apologetic that is adequate for your own personal assurance about what you believe, help you have confidence in the claims of your position, help you critically evaluate your systems of thought so you can then, then you can compete for the minds of men and help you consider solutions to the major problems that confront the biblical position today. We want to do all of those things. Uh, now, if you took apologetics as a college course, uh, they, what they would do is they'd break this down in typically two parts. Uh, you have the argument and the evidences. And so the argument you would have, you know, who is God? And then what are the evidences? You know, this is who God is. This is how God has revealed himself to be. This is what that is. I mean, you have a, I'm looking at this too. I don't know what's coming next. Oh, okay. I, the, the slides are so small on this phone. And so I swear, maybe I need glasses. It's just as I'm getting older. Or a bigger phone. That's right. I need a bigger phone. What's wrong with Apple? They just keep making them longer and not bigger. What's up with them? Uh, anyway, so other things are like, uh, what are the scriptures? And then what are the truth claims about that? Then how can we defend what the scriptures actually are and what they teach? Tonight, what we're going to do is simply give you an overview of what apologetics are, give you some good warnings about apologetics as well, because we don't want you to walk out of here all puffed up. 
apologetics is a discipline that tries to answer the question, what rational defense can be given for the Christian faith? Bam, see, there it is. It's not about arguing or debating with others. It's not like, well, if he says this, then I'll say that. It is all about evangelism. It is all about, first and foremost, presenting the person of Christ. This is why Douglas Wilson, when speaking about apologetics, says, you win the man, not the argument. Your goal is to is not to win anything other than people to Jesus Christ. When Jesus called his disciples in Mark 1.17, he said he's going to make them into fishers of men. He didn't say he's going to make them into fishers going out to find all the wrongs and all the bad theology and all the stupid arguments. He sent them out to simply win people. And that's what we want to do. Arguments can and should play a role in the work of evangelism, which is why apologetics consists more of just smiling and being sweet. Uh, Douglas Wilson says this, Arguments play a role, but argumentation is a sharp tool, and a tool is something that a craftsman should, if he wants to keep all his fingers, understand fully in order to wield it properly. So we want you to keep all of your fingers, theologically speaking, okay? So uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And talking about apologetics, where we come tonight is we must start with a look at our own hearts. Why we want to learn it, what we want to know, why are we doing this? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, Paul is not saying don't argue, because arguing is involved. But Timothy is said to be correcting his opponents. He's supposed to be able to teach, but there is more involved in it. Followers of Jesus are supposed to have a certain air about them, a certain demeanor. It's one calculated by God to change people's hearts and minds. So someone who loves apologetics should be not, should, should not be quarrelsome. They should not just be arguing for the sake of argument. They must be kind when he, Paul says, corrects. So when he argues, he must know how to do it with gentleness. In this context, it is our character and our demeanor that line up together when we have an argument. Because, you know, again, we want to see someone's heart change to love and worship Jesus with their entire lives. We want to see that happen. And we don't just want to overwhelm them with our own arguments. Because hopefully in the end, people come to repentance before Jesus Christ. Um, Got to remember, someone who can make a defense for the gospel is not a gunslinger. They're not looking to find notches in my belt. Oh, I took that guy out and that guy out. Boom, boom, double kill. That's, that's not what we're trying to do. The point of argument is, is to win people or spectators. And if some people are already won, then to strengthen and encourage them in their beliefs. And when you have the mindset that says, you know, I, I believe that I want to live this way. I want to, if I argue, I want to talk this way. I think God then actually blesses that debate and argument. Douglas Wilson says, it must be frankly stated that a lot of people who are deeply interested in apologetics need to think a lot less about winning and a lot more about being winsome. It's how we go about it. Uh, the truth is hard, it is unyielding, and that means the truth can make a great club. So we must learn how to swing it effectively and rightly. Uh, open your Bibles to Acts 18. Acts 18. Again, the goal is to win the lost, encourage those who are one. That should be the greatest point of all apologetics, to encourage believers who are unable to answer the arguments that are being pressed against them. You know, but even here, the point is always, always the gospel, Jesus, people. Acts chapter 18, verse 27. 
says this, and when he, and that's Apollos, you can see that in verse 24, when he uh, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace, through who grace had believed, and for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public by, sh- show, by sh- showing by the scriptures that uh, the Christ was Jesus. So what you have in this passage, you don't have any indication that the people he debated with agreed with him or ever came to believe, but they were happy that, but the other believers were happy he was there because he strengthened the believers who were there. I mean, we were told the believers were encouraged by the reputation of the arguments that were being offered against the personhood of Jesus Christ. And this happens a lot. When an apologist goes to a secular campus, they, they actually have them a lot coming to Cal Poly. Uh, William Lane Craig has gone to Cal Poly. And what happens a lot of times is the people in the audience are strengthened because if you're a student and you have sat through a class and had God ridiculed hundreds and hundreds of times, it's really nice to hear an answer to the argument that has been thrown at you all those times. Because if an apologist really knows his business, he's an encouragement to the audience. You know, he may, he may not win the other person on the stage, but there are people in that room who will be greatly encouraged because of it. It's kind of like uh, that verse where it says, where Jesus says the Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man, or the, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's the same thing in that arguments are made for the audience, not the audience for the arguments. And so if you're talking to somebody and you get really frustrated in the middle of it, you've got to remember Jesus died for them just like he died for you. Jesus did not die for your arguments or your research or your preparation or your quick comebacks or your clear mastery of all the issues at hand. He did die for your pride in all of those things, by the way. Okay, but I was saying. Okay, so uh, we are going to uh, talk about some types of apologetics. Now I'm going to get to a bunch of information for you. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, slow down. Okay. Uh, two essential forms of apologetics. Uh, the first one is what are called offensive apologetics. Uh, these are called positive apologetics. Uh, when, and when I say offensive, I don't mean you're being offensive. It's like, uh, like a coin toss. Boom. I won. I'm going to receive the ball. Okay, that kind of thing. You're, you're on the offense. And so offensive apologetics seek to present a positive case for Christian truth claims. I didn't put those in there in your notes, though. Uh, usually they can be broken down into two things, which are called natural theology. These are based on reason and natural evidences, and then Christian evidences. Uh, classic examples of arguments based on natural theology would be things like uh, what are called the ontological argument, which I'll talk about a little more in just a moment, which is the nature of reality, the cosmological argument, which is the cause of the universe, the teleological argument, which is arguments from design, and moral arguments, which will all point to the existence of God. Uh, they would also, when it comes down to using Christian evidences in it, that would include like fulfilled prophecy, the claims of Jesus, the historical reliability of the Gospels in that, and again, uh, the goal is to show that there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. Now, the other side is that are what are called defensive or negative. Not that they're negative, but it's just because it's called defensive. And what these seek to do is obliterate objections to Christian truth claims, and the goal is to show that there's no good reason that has ever been given to prove that Christianity is not true. And if done right, these two approaches to apologetics can be blended together. Uh, when we talked about at the first element you, we got to be careful because today when you talk about the truth claims of Christianity, you are more than likely to get thrown to the lions. We call those critics today. Hey, the, the lions just come after you. Uh, there are a number of high-profile things around the world that are taking place today. 
And I think Christians are being called more and more and more to be good apologists in the midst of those things. Uh, we are called to be people who understand the scriptures and not just make arguments that can prove that God exists, but also philosophical arguments of why the scriptures are actually right. Uh, sometimes it seems like, for me, this day and age, a favorable outcome to a lot of those things is just not going to happen because our God likes to work through hardship and pain. And I think he's going to be bringing some. Um, so I'm going to show you a simple apologetic. I'm going to show you a video in just a minute of Peter and Hazel Mary Bull. Uh, they are owners of a small bed and breakfast in Cornwall, England. And due to their, due to their Christian convictions, they would, they would not allow any unmarried couple to share a bed in their bed and breakfast. Okay, uh, single people can, you know, get a room. Married couple can share a room with, with double beds. Five years ago, the Bulls turned away a homosexual couple. Uh, it was not the first time they had done it. They turn away anybody who's not married. And all of a sudden, this couple responded with legal action. The case is now headed to the British Supreme Court. Uh, it's too late to save their hotel because as soon as it hit the papers, it just came out like these people hate people who are gay. And they don't. You know, it's just they have this conviction. Nobody who is not married gets to stay in our hotel and room with double beds. And so uh, uh, this whole backlash happened against them. They have now lost their hotel. They had death threats and vandalism took a toll on them. Uh, they are thrown in the spotlight of public scrutiny. Uh, they appeared on British national television, uh, and they get this line of cross-examination from some talk show hosts. And I want to show you this interview because I think Hazel Mary just does an amazing job in this video. So here it is. Now, do you remember the landmark court case in which a gay couple were awarded damages on the grounds of sexual discrimination after being refused a room at a guest house in Cornwall? That was five years ago, believe it or not, but tomorrow the hotel owners will appeal the decision at the Supreme Court. Hesselway and uh, Peter Bolt join us in just a moment. But first, here's their story. Devout Christians Hazel Mary and Peter Bull have run the Chai Morva House Hotel in Penzance, Cornwall, since 1986. In 2008, their decision to refuse a room to gay couple Martin Ball and Stephen Preddy was a decision that would change their lives. The Guest House website states, We have few rules, but please note that as Christians we have a deep regard for marriage. Our double-bedded accommodation is not available to unmarried couples. Balls argued their policy of restricting double beds to married couples was down to their religious beliefs and was not directed at sexual orientation. But the Court of Appeal ruled that they acted unlawfully and they were ordered to pay damages of £3,600. Since the controversy hit the headlines, the couple have been the victims of vandalism and have even received death threats. Now, due to lack of visitors, they've had to put their home and their livelihood up for sale. And Peter Ball are with us this morning. Good morning. Good, Good morning. to see you both. Uh, death threats, vandalism, the B&B up for sale. You've already had to pay compensation to uh, Martin and Stephen. Uh, why are you going through this now? Why the appeal? What are you hoping to achieve? Well, for one thing, the appeal process is there. And uh, it's there to settle issues like this, especially in the Supreme Court. And the reason we've continued with this is because we feel there are arguments still to be made because we're hoping uh, that some way or another a pathway will be found through this so that two different lifestyles, which at the moment have had a head-on collision, two different lifestyles could live together in our society. Might I suggest that maybe you're in the, the wrong business? Because when you think about it, only 47% of couples now are actually mm -hmm. married. 
So when you when you do that, you know, from you know, forget mm-hmm. all the arguments and all the rest of it, but actually from a business sense, mm. surely it doesn't make any mm. sense. No, it, on the face of it, it looks like that because, of course, we've always refused uh, a double-bedded accommodation to unmarried heterosexual couples. Why do you do couples. that, though? Why, why are you never? It's Bible-based. It's it's entirely Bible-based. But, but you know, as a Christian, uh, surely the God that you worship is a loving God, is a tolerant God. Um, and if, a civil, if people are in a civil partnership, they're obviously in love. So what's wrong with them sharing a bed? I think it's a myth to believe that entirely. It's, uh, he's, he is a loving God, that's true. He's a forgiving God, but there is... And a tolerant one. He is a long-suffering God. He's not entirely tolerant because the Bible is full of cases when he does finally bring judgment about. And we felt that we wanted to, as far as possible, live according to his instructions. And the Bible's very clear about marriage. It's 2013. It's 2013. God hasn't changed. God, Jesus says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. The Bible hasn't changed. And we're wrong. We're, We're living in a dream if we think that he's changed his laws to suit us because that's not the case at all. So you don't accept that you've done anything wrong at all? You don't accept that that was offensive? To we, find this, we find this thoroughly regretful because we clearly state that we prefer to let double-bedded accommodation to married couples. Where do you, mm. did you put that on your website? So yes. people, when people check in, you know, when two people come and check in, how do you know that they're married or not? They're two brothers. Right, that's a fair question. We have a script and we try very hard not to offend. Remember, we've been there for 28 years and this is the first time that we've had any problems. We have a script whereby we say very gently and politely, if one person shows up on the door, say it's a male, you would say, is this for you and your wife? And oddly enough, they will say, no, well, not, not actually my wife, we're partners or we're, it's my yeah, girlfriend or whatever. Only 43% yes. of you know. Yeah, well people. then, I don't know the numbers. I'm, I'm not entirely interested in the numbers because, of course, we're running this. You should this, be as a businesswoman. Well, we're actually. running this under our own roof. And God demands that, that our faith doesn't Your end. God demands. Our God. God demands that our faith doesn't end at the kitchen door. It, he, he, he means your faith to run in every corner of your life. You can't just section him off like that. So one would think that dealing with Christians, we would be fair and honest and upright and honorable and live according to the Bible because the Bible is a Christian's textbook. Do you think most Christians would do the same as you? I can't. Sure. You know. for other Christians. Exactly. Peter, you've been very quiet, presumably, though, that you totally agree with this. and you're, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm nothing to add to what I've already said. Nothing at all. Okay. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. I'd love to know what, uh, what you think. Mm-hmm. Do, do get in touch with us. I, seriously, you got that old grandma, and she just put so many people, like apologists, to shame today because she's so amazing. <laughs> I mean, she got courageous responses. And, and I mean, the whole thing, she starts out, you know, we, we have these different views. How can we begin to live together? I mean, that's, that's the thing. You know, she wants to be open about what the gospel is. And if I was talking to the guy, I think I would have asked him, well, how about you define the word tolerance for me? You know, because, I mean, that would have been my first thing, because, oh, you want to throw a tolerance label on God? Well, yeah, God is tolerant of an awful lot of, we're all still here and we're knuckleheads, okay? You know, that's a God that's very tolerant. So, you know, but again, tolerance comes down to, well, whatever anybody wants to do, well, that's okay. But that's never been the definition of tolerance until 2013. Uh, 
And, and really, what, what the question comes down to is this idea of by what standard? By what standard? That becomes the fundamental question. You know, and, and that's really to apologetics in a real world setting is by what standard? You got two kids on a playground and one says to the other kid, hey, you can't do that. What's the other kid say? Who says? Right? Who, who says? I think it's funny. You get a lot of teenagers who get their first job and they're, you know, and they never even think about a thing like taxes. They get their first paycheck and it's like, where'd all my money go? Taxes. Who says I gotta pay that? The IRS, you know, who says you got to pay it. And so a lot of times when people claim you, you have to do something or something's a certain way, it comes back, why do I have to do this? And this, and this is a point that's what call, is what's called an apologetics. It's called presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics. Um, I put a, a name of a book at the end of the notes. It's Greg Bashan's book. Uh, it covers this really well. Uh, presuppositional apologetics, actually, from a Christian uh, context, teaches that the Christian faith is really the only rational context for thought. It presupposes the Bible is divine revelation. It attempts to expose flaws and other worldviews based on those presuppositions. Uh, most people who come in and talk about things, they all come from a presuppositional place. A Christian simply comes from a place of the scriptures. Um, it uh, presuppositional approach in regards to Christianity, it really says you can't make sense of any human experience apart from these presuppositions. There really is no ground to even reason with a non-Christian without coming to it with some presuppositions. And so claiming presupposition in this context is a belief that takes precedence over another belief. And so it serves like a, as a criterion for the other one. For a Christian, that would be you know the scriptures. We base it first and foremost upon the scriptures as the ultimate presupposition. Uh, the doctrine is that we hold are merely outworkings of the scriptures as they work in our lives. And so when someone says, by what standard, that question on the other side also presupposes also a, a worldview, something that comes along with it. In this case, it was tolerance. Tolerance was the presuppositional view, but what does that mean? This is why it's really hard for someone who doesn't hold something like the scriptures as a standard and simply holds themselves or what is culturally acceptable as a standard. They really have no grounds to stand on because the newscaster claims toler tolerance is the higher standard. Okay, higher. By what standard? Who says so? You know, what are we talking about? And those who really don't have something like the scriptures they base their lives upon really have nothing to judge anything else by. See, it's, this is a huge issue for hardcore evolutionists. I mean, Christopher Hitchens even says that as primates, we have a, all these jumble of conflicting instincts and emotions. C.S. Lewis said, my little paraphrase, is if I have two competing contradictory instincts, an evolutionary approach can account for each of those instincts, like self-preservation or herd preservation. He says, but what it cannot account for is the third instinct that tells me which of those first two instincts is actually correct and which one I should actually obey. He says we don't have an umpire instinct that decides between them. So what we have is we have a conscience, which cannot, which cannot be in presuppositional apologetics, that cannot be accounted for apart from God. And this is one of the reasons it goes back to one of the evidences for there being a God, when we hold things to a standard. And this question is what's called epistemology. Epistemology, it's a branch of philosophy, and it asks how that we can know anything at all in the world. And so there are three basic approaches to this question. Uh, the first one is called rationalism, and this claims knowledge based on objective reasons, things that you can see. Uh, the second one is called empiricism, 
And this is knowledge derived out of an experience. So you have an experience, so you have that knowledge about it. And the third one, which is claimed simply by Christians, is an epistemology of revelation. We know what God wants because he had a point of telling us because he wrote a book to tell us about it. Um, so belief in God's revelation does not exclude reason. It does not exclude experience. It actually creates an appropriate place for both of those things to go together. When you read the scriptures, you have the physical presence of holding a Bible in your hands. You have light rays that bounce off the page and go back to your eyes. Those are experiences. All of that. And in all this, you know, we're assuming and believing that we live in a universe where God has created things. And if God has created everything, then the creator actually wants to speak to his creation. And if we're, and if he wants to speak, we don't have to fight to make him to be heard. He is the one who reveals himself. Now, a lot of talented unbelievers will push back and say, well, how do you know God wrote a book? And the answer to that is simple. I read it. You know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be you know, just like a smart aleck there, but Mark Twain was once asked, do you believe in infant baptism? This is his reply. He said, believe in it, sir. I have seen it done with my own eyes. <laughs> An epistemology of revelation, okay? It, it means that first we believe that God has spoken. First and foremost, in the created order. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, and so it speaks there. But he's also spoken, secondly, through his apostles, his prophets, his martyrs, his visionaries. We have their accounts in the scriptures. It is the only ultimate and infallible book in the world. And then lastly, God has spoken us to, to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That is an epistemology of revelation that is embraced by Christians. And in that, we also have rationalism where we have objective things we can notice that actually speaks to that. And also empirical knowledge that we have experiences that also speak to that. So what I'm going to do is give you some different types of apologetics. I'm jumping through stuff. You can ask me questions at the end. It'll be, it'll be fine. Uh, different type of apologetics. Uh, the first one is called, uh, we'll talk about biblical apologetics. Uh, you have people who only spend their lives in biblical apologetics, and that is simply those people who are con- uh, concerned with authorship and date of biblical books. They, they spend all their time arguing about that and helping you understand you know, what they are and where they came from. Then philosophical apologetics, which we kind of talked about in the presuppositional thing. Uh, this, what it primarily does, is it concerns itself with arguments for the existence of God. Although it doesn't only focus on that area, but it mostly does. Uh, it does not argue for the veracity of Christianity over other religions. It only uh, argues for the existence of a creator. And so you will hear it. When you hear this, you'll hear terms like the first cause. God is the uncaused cause that made everything else. You'll hear words like the pure act. You'll hear words like the unmoved mover. These are all things in philosophical apologetics. That's kind of the starting point. And so the arguments in philosophical apologetics can be uh, used in different categories. One, again, like I talked about, the cosmological argument. And that argues that the existence of the universe demonstrates that God exists because everything that started had a cause that started it, except for God who is the uncaused first. There's what's called the teleological argument. This is that there's a purposeful design to the world around us. And design requires a designer, so it points to the existence of God. There's the ontological argument. And it argues that the very concept of us even believing in a God demands that there must be a God. Fourthly, there is the moral argument. It, it argues that there, to have any objectively valid morals in this world, there must be an absolute from which they are derived, and that again points to a creator. Number the five in this, there's transcendental uh, the argument. And this argues that the abilities for you and I to reason and to think and talk to each other requires the existence of God. 
And then, again, it comes down to these presuppositional arguments and argues that the basic beliefs of theists and non-theists requires God as a basic precondition. You know, it comes down to the idea of presuppositional apologetics, that presuppositions, again, are required to have any philosophical discussion about anything. There are no neutral assumptions from which a Christian can argue with a non-Christian. Then you have what are called moral apologetics. It states that uh, there are morals in this world, and we are obligated to to certain things in our world. It it is why we look out, and even people who don't believe in Jesus see genocide in foreign countries as wrong. You know, the murder of infants and children as wrong. You know, we, we see injustice as something that is wrong. We see people who need food as we got to get them food. There are certain things that we are called to. Peter Kreeft said this, We are really, truly, objectively obligated to do good and avoid evil. And so moral apologetics stresses the arguments uh, of man's sinfulness and man's need then for redemption. They're what's called scientific apologetics, and this is where, from a Christian standpoint, they would uh, contend that the science and the Bible don't contradict each other. They go hand-in-hand with each other. That science, in fact, supports the Christian position. Uh, Actually, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states this, The question about the origins of the world and of man has been the object of many scientific studies which have splendidly enriched our knowledge. These discoveries invite us to even greater admiration for the greatness of the Creator. Uh, there are what are called creation apologetics, and people in this have wide-ranging views. Okay, uh, You will have young earth creationism, you can have old earth creationism, and you can have theistic evolution. Uh, young earth creationism argues from a standpoint that the Bible teaches that the earth is between six and 10,000 years old. Uh, they reject the scientific consensus for the old age of the earth. Old earth creationists believe it is possible to harmonize the Bible's six-day creation account with the scientific evidence that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and that the earth is 4.54 billion years old. Uh, then there's what's called, and if you want to know what I think about that, you can ask me when we're done. Okay. <laughs> Oops. Did I just somehow go oh, there? It doesn't want to go. Never know. It didn't like my finger swiping. Okay. And the last one is called experiential apologetics. And this is, this is really more in the form of a Christian apologetic because what this does is it, it appeals primarily, uh, if not exclusively, to experience of the Christian faith. God changed me. I was in this horrible place and he came and did this thing in my life. And I believe in him because these things have taken place. They're experiential. Uh, it, it, it stresses that experience. Uh, it really points more to the role of the Holy Spirit to convince heart and truths and minds of the central theme of Christianity. Okay, uh, so I'm going to give you three vital roles of why apologetics is important. Why are we talking about it and even covering this over six weeks? Uh, the first one is shaping culture. Uh, Western culture today is deeply in need of objective, reasoned truth. Uh, today, we are a byproduct of what was once called the Enlightenment, which I don't think they got very enlightened, but they called themselves that. It's all about free thought, human reason alone. Uh, and so today, there's a lot of people think that reason and religion or reason and Christianity are at odds with each other, and they're not. But they will teach that physical science is the ultimate authority and that the scriptures don't have any ultimate authority. We want to see everything. And so part of our job is to understand how these things work together and to show that Christianity is a viable, rational option to belief in our culture. We have to be able to show that. Uh, J. Grissom Machen says, False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation to be controlled by ideas which prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. 
we must begin to shape culture better in how we talk about Christianity. We cannot just be a people who hold signs and say, you're evil and you're wrong and you're terrible. We must be a people who live and apologetic, which I'm going to kind of close with too. Secondly, it also strengthens believers. Again, you have junior high, high school, and college kids there in classes being bombarded all day long with people who have an axe to grind against. I don't know why people who hate God the most end up being like philosophy instructors in schools. I don't know why that happens, but it seems how how it works out. And so parents need to be intellectually astute enough to answer some of those questions and objections that their kids encounter. I think kids need Bible stories as well as apologetics and theology. I mean, the scriptures will tell you that, that Satan is making war against God's people. So we got to train our kids to be able to step into this, you know, not to, to bloody and take people out, but to win people to Christ. Uh, in many people's lives, apologetics has helped them to persevere in their faith. A lot of Christians will not even share the faith or talk about Jesus because they have so much fear in doing that. And so apologetics is a way to boost that evangelism. And thirdly, uh, you can evangelize unbelievers. There's really, uh, there is a small number of people who are actually saved through hearing apologetics. You know, and they've been really influential. People like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Walter Martin, Lee Strobel, they all were saved through this idea of apologetics. So, uh, what do good apologists have in common? I'll give you some people throughout history very quickly. Uh, firstly, you have a guy like Augustine, way, way, way ago, okay? Uh, he held scripture in higher authority than he did the church. Good. Finally, somebody does. You know, scripture first. Let's take that. Uh, he asserts that one must believe before he can really know everything, which is also true. Which is also true. Uh, and he also said, though, that reason has its role. You fast forward, you get to a guy like Thomas Aquinas, and he says, there are truths that surpass human reason, which are true. You know, you take, like, the Trinity. I mean, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. People say, oh, you Christians made that up. It's like, make it up. We don't even understand it. <laughs> make it up? What does that even mean? So there's some things that surpass human reason, you know, and others that are within reason, like the existence of God. We know that God does exist. And so, he also said that truths of reason can be seen and truths of faith must be believed. It doesn't mean they're incompatible, it means they go hand in hand, they work well together. You go farther than that, you get to Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth said God reveals himself in nature and in scripture. He says it is the authority of the word of God that's the foundation for all religious belief. You fast forward even farther than that, to modern day you get a guy like um, Alvin Plantiga, who's a great guy. Uh, He says belief in God is rational, wholly apart from any evidence, it's still rational. He says belief in God is properly basic to how God made people. And man naturally apprehends the, God's existence. It's, it's why, there's no like little kids in here, right? Since I don't make everybody mad at me tonight. But, but it's why you can tell your kids about Santa Claus and they just believe it. Even though you're a bunch of liars. <laughs> and you get mad at me for pointing it out. I don't know what's wrong with you people. You know, but, but the, but kids naturally latch on to that. It's like, yes, I know there's something bigger than me. This is, this is why if you're, if you're a father or a dad in this room, you really become the Christ figure to your kids. Because they're gonna understand Jesus better by you than anybody else. And so that's a really high calling. Don't freak out and run away, I'm just saying, okay? I'll give you two more, uh, types of arguments, uh, and then I'll kinda close and then let you ask some questions. Uh, there are two types of arguments in this. One is called a deductive argument. Inductive argument is an argument that's intended by the arguer to take a couple uh, statements and bring those together so you have like these premises or assumptions that are true and they're so strong that the ending point must also be true. It is to be accepted. It's impossible for the conclusion to be false. As an example, this is a big one today and I believe Paul's going to talk about this next week. Uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Okay? 
Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Uh, even people who, who are hardcore evolutionists will agree with that statement, okay? Now, the universe began to exist. So, the universe has a cause. And this goes back to the idea of an uncaused cause, God's making everything. Okay, so that's a deductive argument. Then on the other side of that, there's what's called an inductive argument. And this is where you have a couple of statements, and, the, and it's strong evidence, but it's not absolute proof of the conclusion. Okay, deductive argument, the conclusion is like a no-brainer, yes, it has to be there, but sometimes you start there and then have to move into this inductive argument to get people into a probable solution. Again, here's, here's an example. Um, uh, when it's sunny in Singapore, most people don't take their umbrellas outside. It is sunny in Singapore today, therefore most people outside will not have their umbrellas. Okay? That's, that's kind of a deductive argument. Now, a, an inductive argument, I'll give you one of those. Okay? Uh, every time I walk by that dog, he hasn't tried to bite me. So the next time I walk by that dog, he's not going to try and bite me. It's probably true, but may not be true. Especially if you have a ball and my dog wants to eat it. Okay, so that's, that's kind of it. Okay, so uh, ultimately you got to remember that it all rests in the hands of Christ anyway. Uh, you know, he is the one that, that makes it grow so you trust in him. The role of the Holy Spirit is paramount in showing Christianity to be true. And if someone has objections to Christianity or questions uh, about certain things, uh, you preach the gospel, but you also use rational argumentation at the same time. You use your head and your heart. Again, that's what this class is for. By the end of it, we hope you have a lot of rational explanation for the things that you believe. Um, and it is also true that we can never argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. And the danger in this is sometimes if you are too caught up in apologetics, you end up focusing on the argument more than the person you're trying to win themselves. You just want to win. You don't care about that person anymore. And so you don't let apologetics get in the way of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use rational argumentation after sharing the gospel if they have questions or objections. Our primary aim is always to present Jesus. And sometimes someone's just going to want to argue with you. They're just going to want to get in your face. And what you really need to ask, say, if I answered all of your objections, do you really want to become a Christian? Because sometimes it's just, no, I just want to argue with you. Well, okay, well, this is going to go nowhere then. That's, you know, let's just do that. A lot of apologetics is really simple and reasonable. I mean, you have certain people in the media today who are out there, and they, and they say, I read the Bible, I know all this stuff. But let me, let me just, you know, something really simple. So say so you got a guy like Macklemore, Okay. So you got Macklemore, and, and, and he preaches a theology, all right? Would you, would you trust Macklemore or, say, a Tim Keller, who lives his life loving Jesus to tell you more about what the Bible teaches? Uh, a few years ago, this book came out called The Da Vinci Code, all right? And in the book, The Da Vinci Code, it's this whole thing about everything we know about Christianity isn't true, and, you know, Jesus was off having sex with Mary Magdalene and making babies, and, and, and all, all this crazy stuff. And a lot of it that Dan Brown, you know, it's the book's a fiction book, okay? But everybody starts believing it. And one of the things that he bases this all on is Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. You know, because, oh, the person sitting next to Jesus looks very feminine, so that's Mary Magdalene, and, and it's, it's all this crazy stuff. But, you know, the first thing, just, just think rationally about this. The first question should be is, why do you trust a painting by a white guy in 1498 to tell you what happened at the Last Supper? Right? Right? So when it comes to, again, to theology, do you, would you trust a guy like Dan Brown? Or would you trust a guy more like an R.C. Sproul? who has spent his life loving and reading the scriptures and wanting to know who Jesus is. I mean, you look at our media today, and they, and they throw lifestyles out in front of you, and they lift people up like, say, Madonna. I didn't just try and find the ugliest picture I could, okay? I just, <laughs> I just thought it was funny. 
but but they but they hail someone like Madonna, you know, as in the media as wonderful. You know, do do you trust Madonna for theology, or someone maybe you know like John Piper? Again, a guy who spends his life just loving Jesus and wanting other people to love Jesus too. Who do you trust in those things? See, again, at the end of it all, apologetics is all about the gospel. It is all about the gospel. And it is useful when someone is openly seeking the truth. And seriously, mission for you and me, mission is the life purpose of a saved person. We are on mission for Jesus. And that means we live a practical apologetic. That means it's not just with all the words and the arguments. It means that we are people who are hospitable. We open our homes. We share meals with people. We help people with needs. We become inclusive by seeking people for relationships. We live with authenticity and don't compartmentalize our faith. We live in a way that it's a practical apologetics because that is how apologetics is useful and effective. It is reasoning from the scriptures, but it's also lived with our lives. Um, What we do in gospel communities with our leaders is we give them this little chart. We put it in your notes as well. And, And this is kind of a practical apologetic chart for you because what this chart does is it shows how things work. The outer two circles are things that are outside your life and outside your home. It's this idea of mission where you go and you serve with people, uh, doing things necessarily even maybe outside of element. You participate with people in things outside. It's like when we did uh, the last Hobbit movie. We went to the theater instead of renting the theater out ourselves. We went there. So, I mean, granted, we were two weeks late, so we're like the only people in there. But, you know, we went to something rather than trying to bring everybody in. And the other ones are about bringing people in. Intimacy, you bring them into a place of hospitality, into a place of fellowship. Because that is a practical apologetic. That is a pra- uh, apologetic that is lived out with your life. And in that, you will have discussions with people. And that is where it's good to know what you believe, to live what you believe. And these things coming together with your words and your deeds, both. And this is what we want to do for you in the class. Okay, so questions? Originally, tolerance is this idea that we can have differing opinions and it's and we can disagree, but we're civil. That's tolerance. Tolerance wasn't I have to approve your lifestyle or you have to approve of mine. And so what, what what's happening today is you're getting a, a change in terms. They're they're changing what words mean. And, and it's, happened, right? Since creation, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So you know, so, so we, you, you got to be careful when people say, so a lot of times when you talk to somebody, like, um, if, if, I'm, if I'm, say, talking to a, um, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, a lot of times my question when we start talking to each other is I ask, define grace for me. What, what does grace mean? Because I will say grace, they will say grace, but really the definitions of those are a little bit different. And so because, because, you know, grace is God's gift to us. It's all about the freedom to worship. I mean, God wants to set his people free. You know, Jesus says, you know, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. It's about freedom. It's not about bondage. And, and so we, that, the whole idea of grace comes down to that idea. And so sometimes you've got to define your terms when you talk to people, when they say things like, you know, it's, isn't your God a tolerant God? Well, why don't define to me what, what tolerant is? You know, what does that mean?
I think God is intolerant of injustice in the world. I think that's why he wants his people to do something about it. And it's okay to be intolerant of injustice in the world. You know, you know starving kids in, you know, in Ethiopia. Shouldn't we do something about it? Yes, there could be a starving family right around your corner. Shouldn't you do something about that? Yeah, I got it. Read the question. I see it. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. <laughs> You're going to have more next week, I promise. You're just going to be like, I don't understand half of what that guy just said. <laughs> just good. You'll go back and listen to it again. Anything else? <laughs> What's my view of creation? See, I said it. Um, my view of creation is this. Uh, the book of Genesis is not a scientific textbook. Uh, and, and we have tried to make it into one. We, I, think, I talked about this when we went through the book of Genesis, the first week I talked about this. Uh, what we do when we come to the book of Genesis is we say, uh, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so what day was that? What time? Was it like a Tuesday at 1.35 with 12 seconds in? Boom, there it was. What was it? That's not the point and purpose of Genesis. Uh, actually, that the very first thing in, in Genesis has this connotation of that at some point God did this. And it doesn't nail it down for us. Um, I, I think that what you have in a Genesis account, and, and again, be tolerant with me in case you disagree. I'm okay if you disagree with me. What I think you have in, in a Genesis account is when you look at it, uh, first off, the, the entire point is God. God made it. That's what's important. There is a creator. He is not you. Okay, That's number one. That's, that's really important. And then as you go through it, I, I think that you know it could, it could be there for a really long time. And the six days of creation are God pre- actually preparing not even the entire earth, but just a section of the earth for man to live in. And I think it's really specific because what happens after that is the same wording that God uses, you know, or that Moses uses when he writes uh, the book of Genesis. He's writing to these people who are walking around in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And a lot of these same terms are used when, when God draws the water back off of the land. It's the same wording that's kind of used when he parts the Red Sea. Or in the book of Joshua when they go into the promised land and, they, and the water uh, goes back from the Jordan. It's that same wording. And then, man, you know, the, the, everything in the book of Genesis that you see, the only times God says it's good is in, when it's in reference to something for man. And so God keeps telling the Israelites, I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. This is a good land. And they're both referencing each other because you've got a people in the midst of going into a promised land, and Genesis is showing that God made this land for these people. So, uh, I don't know. Because it's not the point. I, I, think, I think what I do know is that God made it, and I, I don't necessarily think it was a, a literal six days. Could have been. What about, uh, are there any other quantities that you would question then? Well, that, you know, I mean, there's any other quantities? There's thousands of them in there, so, you know, 40 days, 5,000 people, one year, 10 years, three days in a tomb, you know. Uh, you know six, six, You're one of those. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I, if, you, if you get honest Bible scholars, when they all think that there is some reasoning to the lengths of the ages of the patriarchs. And even to, there's a whole bunch of things you can look at that, but even today, people aren't exactly sure of what those ages are. But they mean something. And I'm sure they meant something to Moses at the time. What you also have to understand is when, you're, when you see you know, this person, we're going to get a whole topic of 
creation. Yeah. Um, when you get off, when when you read, uh, you know, this person was the father of so and so. It's it's not that that was the only kid that he had. There were tons of other kids in there, and a lot of times the wording like uh, the father of that can also be translated as ancestor of. So it doesn't doesn't even necessarily mean this was like straight line, boom, 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 boom. It could mean that this person was the ancestor, and so there's a lot of generations in there. Again, we don't know because Genesis, I do not think, was meant to be a scientific textbook. It was meant to be a theological textbook of who God is and what God is doing. And I think when we come with it with a, with a westernized mindset that's so linear, it begins to not make too much sense to us because we lose what the Hebrews... The Hebrews were nonlinear. I mean, Hebrew storytelling is beginning, middle, beginning. That's, that's how it goes. You look at the whole scriptures. You start in the garden, and if, the, and if there was never sin, the garden would have proliferated, people would have come around, and eventually would have had cities. And what you have is you go to the very end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, and what is it? It's gardens again. There's a tree in the middle of the city. It's, it's this whole, I think, this beginning, whole bunch of sin in the middle, beginning. It's God bringing everything back to fruition again. It's redemption. It's it's a whole redemption story. Aaron, yes. They also didn't have the Roman calendar, which is what we're our. Yeah, their days were all messed up. <laughs> it's like I need to add some days here. I just don't know when it happened. No. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that when if God did create it in seven days, do you think he cre- could have created the world like the rocks already aged and with the fossils already in the ground, or like? Yeah. God can do anything. I think God did a lot of things just to confuse us. I think I think He did a lot of things so that when we when we try and scientifically pull apart, like okay, so it's like an atom is the smallest thing that we know, and God's like, and they split an atom. Oh, you can split an atom. There's things smaller than an atom. Oh, this has got to be. It's like I can split the thing that I just split the thing into. Oh my goodness, what am I? And and smaller. This is where you get subatomic particles. They're all smaller than. And that subatomic. And so, yeah, I, I think God does things like that all the time. So we're just like head scratcher, like, what the heck? I mean, seriously. Okay. I'm going to say something that's going to blow your mind. Right? <laughs> Scientifically speaking, the light that we experience today is 10,000 years old. Because they bounce around in the sun, these photons, for 10,000 years before they actually, 10 to 30, before they make it out and hit us. What? What? That's just crazy talk. Seriously, I, God can do anything He wants to. Do. You know, could He could He have made you know the stars stretch the light? Boom, boom. Yeah, sure. Did He? I don't know. Oh yeah. Do I think dinosaurs? Were? Yes. <laughs> I have seen Toy Story. <laughs> yeah, I saw Jurassic Park. Toy Story is more impressive, but I saw Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes, you I guess I was thinking about um, a day could be different. Like the definition of a day, we don't really know what that is. For us, for now, it's one rotation every year. Well, the word day is yom, and it, okay, yeah, whatever. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> it could, I'm going to split hairs, yes. It's like the difference between a football minute and a God. A football minute is like two hours. Have you seen the end of the Super Bowl? It's like it's two minute warning. It's like we got an hour left. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to pray. And then hopefully we'll see you next week. we are right, right on an hour, so this is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a good God who uh, not only saves us and gives us the experience of being a people who can worship and love you, but also gives us reasoned reasons why we can as well. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself in a way uh, that we can actually speak of you in ways that uh, maybe people who don't believe uh, will one day believe as well. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, for people who are, are struggling in the ideas of faith and who you are, that you would bring a great peace and a calm there. Because again, it is you. It is you. You are the one who uh, brings people to the place where their hearts are just broken before you. And so we ask that you would draw them. And that uh, the whole idea of reasoning from the scriptures is great and wonderful, but knowing you is even more wonderful. And so I ask that we have people who live a practical apologetic with our lives. Amen. All right. See you next week.